Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 43 of the Whistling in the Dark podcast. I am your host, Patrick Bradley. I'm down here in Atlanta, Georgia, and today is Sunday, April 26, 2020. And today I have uh, it's a historic day in the history of Whistling <laughs> in the Dark. I have a guest. I have a guest on the line. His name is Adam Steele. He is a fellow uh, PhD holder from Georgia Tech. Mm-hmm. And uh he has come on. I have referenced him in past episodes. He's actually probably the a lot of people refer to, you know, remember how they kind of got turned on to libertarianism or thinking about the free market. And actually, mine isn't Ron Paul or Murray Rothbard. It's actually Adam Steele. And, uh, <laughs> we can come back to that topic. Uh, but I have been following Adam on Twitter recently, and he's been um, posting a lot about the different numbers with COVID-19. And I, I, uh, he asked if, if, um, I wanted him to come on and I jumped at the opportunity and here we are. So, uh, thanks for coming. Thank you. Yeah. I just, uh, you know, I'd never normally post on Twitter cause it's an okay place to listen, but we all know it's a cesspool. So, uh, but, but this COVID thing got me kind of, kind of going. So I, I felt like I had to at least speak my mind on it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know I found myself sort of, um, I guess not in the beginning. I, I, I mean, I remember the last week we were at work, I sort of just felt like, well, you know, I don't know why we're here. Cause we can all, you know, work from yeah. home. And yeah. I, I just wanted to get the hell out of there. And, and, you know, I'd said before, I, I mean, I know a lot of the sort of like libertarian voices that I and, and friends and stuff, they were sort of, oh, you know, the, the government is like taking away our freedoms. And in the beginning, I kind of felt like, I don't know. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm also kind of uh, more um, it's harder to get as worked up when they're I'm sort of actually agreeing with them or doing, you know, mm-hmm. aligned with them. Normally they're doing awful, terrible thing, you know. But yeah. as I and and I think that some of what you're going to talk about, as like more and more statistics have come out, um, yeah. you know, I've started to uh, to sort of a, change my tune a little bit. Um, so mm-hmm. I'd be interested. I mean, what what would you say? Like, what what have you been looking at? Yeah, I mean, the, I felt kind of similarly to you in that in the beginning, like I was worried about this in December because it's coming out of China you know you're not getting accurate numbers out of them. So who the hell knows how dangerous it really is? So, you know, at first I said, is this, you know, the level of concern is fully, fully justified because we just don't know what's going on over there. Um, It's really since it started to spread outside of China that the information has become available that would allow you to say, yeah, this is bad. It's not a hoax. This is a bad thing. It's going to kill a bunch of people, but maybe it isn't as awful or as earth-shaking as perhaps it's being made out to be by some of people, especially now the people uh, in authority in a lot of Western countries. Yeah, yeah. It seems that... But not all. But not all. (laughs) It's something we'll talk about. Right. So it seems like the the mortality rate 
certainly um, seems to be a good bit lower. But like you said, I mean, the numbers coming out of China are, I mean, who knows, right? It just sort of stopped at 80,000 cases. And then (laughs) I I don't know. I mean, I could believe that maybe they just murdered all 80,000 people and burned their bodies and they actually stopped it. But... Oh, and there was a ton of crazy stuff, like people tracking how many urns were delivered to funeral homes instead of the official government statistics, and there's large numbers. But it's like you have no baseline here to compare. But, you know, now we do have some good data. So, like, now I feel like we're in a position to say, okay, how dangerous is this looking? Can we project forward from that? And what is a rational response based on that? Yeah. So, So there's a lot of ways to look at it. Uh, one thing I I try to do uh, occasionally in in uh, various episodes is kind of talk about my methodology a little bit or technique and and I'm a a pretty haphazard person um, but I think going through you know all these years of physics training and research and you know I I think I have been schooled in the art of of critical thinking and mm-hmm. and not automatically buying whatever argument is presented to me but also right. you know looking around at for alternate views and and i thought it would be interesting um if you sort of spoke a little bit about you know people have heard for 42 straight episodes me just rant um yeah. so it'd be interested uh for them to be able to hear another person sort of talk about their approach and you know maybe in particular sure. with this topic sure it's you know the, the first thing i always say is someone says you know X is bad. And what I always say is compared with what, you know, so we're talking about a disease, a deadly one. Um, So is it dangerous? How dangerous? And is it dangerous, you know, compared to what, what level of risk? And is our response to it rational in relation to what else we could be doing? Mm -hmm. So the first thing, the first thing I want to do actually did a a really interesting calculation uh, just, just yesterday. Um, the basic idea is uh, for whatever age you are, there's some risk that you will die from something in the next year. It could be a car accident if you're younger, you know, or, or violence. If you're older, you know, it's going to be cancer, stuff like this. So the question is, relative to just living your life, how dangerous is it to get COVID? And the answer, of course, depends a lot on your age, mm-hmm. but I think people would be surprised at how low, in my opinion at least, the numbers are, um, such that you say, well, do I, spend, do I spend my years thinking, wow, I could really go this year, yeah. or do I just kind of live my life and accept some like base level of risk? Mm-hmm. And so what is this compared to this? So if I tell you, if you're uh, under the age of 50, uh, your risk uh, relative to like everything else, COVID only increases it by less than 20%. So whatever chance you have of dying this year, and if you're below 50, it's quite low, a small fraction of a percent, COVID only adds an extra 20% on top of that. Not 20% chance of dying, but 20% chance to that baseline level. Yeah. So like if it was so 0.1, it's, it's 0.12. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, if you, it's like living an extra couple of months of a year and being like, wow, I made it at the end. You Mm -hmm. know, most people probably don't think that way. Uh, 
going all the way up to when you're above 70, it's about 150%, and above uh, 80, it's about 200%. So living a year and a half or uh, living two and a half years or living three years for everyone. Now, are you so saying you, if you have COVID-19 or just I guarantee every- that you're going to get it. Oh, this is uh, the additional yeah. risk. Oh, yeah. Okay. Is, All right. Yeah, I, I missed that because I was going to say it was like, yeah. that's actually – uh, higher than I would expect yeah. a 20, uh, 20% increase. But mm-hmm. if you're saying yes, like I'm actually infected with it, then right. there's only, this is, li- this is like the worst case, like literally every single person gets it. And mm-hmm. then you take that and you take, uh, some reasonable, uh, estimates. So I use the numbers, uh, for like number of deaths out of Massachusetts and I assumed, uh, roughly 10% of the population exposed, which is of course much higher than, the confirmed number of cases, but is consistent with some of the other testing that I'll go into a little bit later. Mm -hmm. And I even assume on top of that, we miss 50% uh, of the deaths. So that the the real death count from COVID is 50% higher than the confirmed deaths, which is, which is consistent with like the kind of numbers that are coming out of uh, New York city. Now they're saying like, you know, people might die and never have gotten tested, you know, and they pass away. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that if someone usually like the way we look at a lot of these things. So if, if a young person is tragically killed because their country sends them off to fight in a war, this is a huge tragedy uh, in part because they had so much of their life ahead of them. Mm-hmm. Of course, like I don't want my parents to to get hurt or to die. And, you know, no one does. But right. the reality is that we all accept that a young person or a child dying is much worse than an older person dying. Mm-hmm. And so it's reasonable to say, like, you know, there is a level of risk that we're willing to accept for older people that's larger than for younger people. Yeah. And that's just that's the way everybody thinks yeah. and the way everybody acts, even if they want to call you, say, a monster, right. for instance, yeah. for pointing that out. Well, there's a pretty big, you know, backlash amongst younger people against boomers, at least in the mm. meme in the meme game. So <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I feel like a lot of people might be on board with that younger people. Right. Um, and actually, uh, I had a, a question about this. I'm pretty sure this is true, mm. but this is actually one of the differences uh, in kind of a positive way between COVID-19 and the kind of normal flu is that the normal flu actually has a pretty high mortality rate for very young children yes. as well. Whereas yes. this is like no poses very, you know, almost no threat at all. Right. And it even include the numbers uh, for, you know, basically under 20 because they're so small that it's it's all noise. It's it's essentially a negligible level of risk, which is one of the things, one of the kind of alarmist things that you keep hearing is that, you know, COVID doesn't discriminate. You know, they want to tell you that the risks are there for mm-hmm. the young people and the data just doesn't bear that out in any way, shape or form. Now, there are, of course, still like some significant unknowns, like aside from death, it's possible a disease could leave you with some, you know, lifelong ailment. And to that effect, you will occasionally see some scare stories. I saw one, I think it was just yesterday in the Washington Post, talking about like incidents of young people who have had this having strokes. And it's like, oh, this is interesting. So you click on the article, you read it, and you see that it's basically two anecdotes and no data from any states and no way to like frame that risk in terms of like how many people have had this particular thing happen to them relative to the yeah. old people who have gotten it. Yeah. And so the article doesn't give you what you need to even know if you're concerned, to know if you should be concerned. It's just 
scaremongering in the service of like what getting clicks i don't know <laughs> yeah well that they view yeah. anything actionable yeah i mean what are you i was supposed say, to do yeah. having read this article yeah i mean and that's uh and i had mentioned one to you about uh, another article i saw saying that covid that being infected with covid19 may not actually produce like the antibodies that I would say, I think like most disease, unless there's like other, yeah, I mean, sure. Some disease you can get more than once, but you know, generally that's like with the flu, like once you get the flu, you don't get it again. And you know, suddenly there, there's an article saying that there's no evidence. And I think this might be from the world health organization. They say there's no evidence that you do get like enough antibodies from being infected. And I'm, I I did not read this in detail, but I would just assume that they are not actually referencing like any legitimate studies. Like they're just throwing it out there. (laughs) They're they're basically saying there hasn't been a study of this. So we're going to say there's no evidence for the proposition. Yeah. But of course this is a coronavirus. It is in many ways similar to other coronaviruses and Mm -hmm. there is immunity to those once you have them. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, there's a possibility. There's a lot of unknowns here. Uh, I don't think that they're good at informing, like, whether we should lock down or not. But, like, we don't know how fast it's going to mutate. Uh, we don't know about some of these secondary effects. And we don't know how long the immunity is likely to last. Yeah. But if you look at some of the experts in this field, I have a very good article here that was really informative. One of the guys who worked on the HPV vaccine um, that we can talk about. But, you know, his view is that, yes, you will get immunity. It's probably measured in at least in many months, uh, but you couldn't say with any surety that it would be, say, lifelong. Plus, there is the possibility of mutation, which is the case in the flu. So, like, yeah, you get the flu. You don't get that same flu, but you still got to get your flu shot the next year if you want some assurance. Yeah. I I had... Something that I wasn't sure about with this, and I'm I'm not sure if you it's not it's not like you're a, a lifelong epidemiologist, so no. feel free to say you're not. It's fine if you don't know. But I I have been um, wondering, like with things like swine flu and SARS, are they yeah. are they like still out there? I actually haven't read much about that. You know, like what what's like the end game for COVID nineteen? Is it you know or do these viruses like essentially like these coronaviruses are i think swine and uh sars well sars definitely uh was a coronavirus but like do they just like essentially like disappear from the world and then no they're the sars is still out there um it isn't entirely clear to me why we don't see uh resurgences in it every single year um i haven't found any data on that but sars is a very interesting case because there were similarly dire predictions made for it, as we've seen from COVID, that didn't wind up panning out. Mm. Um, COVID has had a bigger impact, as it turns out, than SARS did. But similarly alarmist, in my view, predictions were made. Uh, SARS is also something that they tried very hard to work on a vaccine for. Um, SARS is also a coronavirus, by the way. Um, And uh, they failed in that effort. Uh, it's worth noting there has never been a successful vaccine made for any coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, and this is a large sort of family of viruses. So insofar as some of the logic of the lockdown is we need to batten down the hatches and wait until there is a vaccine. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty there that that's like even a feasible outcome. The SARS vaccine that they had like some progress towards actually made you worse off so they give you the vaccine and then if you encounter SARS you have a worse reaction (laughs) to it 
And so in this case, especially up, like I'm a person who believes very strongly in vaccines. Like I get my flu shot. I tell people to get their vaccines. I'm not one of these anti-vaxxers. But I can tell you this, with the rush that's on, or would be if we took this seriously and say, let's lock down until we have a vaccine, uh-huh. I would be pretty hesitant to take the first vaccine that comes out yeah. because you know it's being rushed out the door with like at least a lower level of testing yeah. than would be the case for something else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that And so last episode, I was talking a little bit about this and, and that was sort of, um, I guess my current, understanding that i've gotten i've gotten as far as to kind of come to the conclusion that the only way out of this is herd immunity and there's two ways to it we either Mm. enough people get infected and have the antibodies that they are effectively immune um, Mm -hmm. that we get to that level or artificially through vaccination and it's very interesting that you say they've never actually made a successful coronavirus vaccination vaccination so it just seems like to me like literally like the answer is to like end the lockdown now and if you're over 50 you know and you have a pre-existing condition maybe stay inside for a little while and then as it as the age goes up like my mom and stepdad are in their late 70s and my stepdad's Mm -hmm. recovering from uh bladder cancer surgery so he's super and so he has to go out the hospital for that um but then you know so obviously like they need to stay quarantined but i had i heard yeah somebody speaking the other day i i'll, I'll try to get this link it, all the links and stuff that that you're talking about i'll, I'll include in the show notes so people can yeah you know i'll make sure you have all those and um but i saw a um a head of a hospital out in california the other uh jeffrey tucker shared it you you follow tucker from ISIS? i i see some of his stuff i don't know yeah. that i see all of it He's pretty, yeah. He's he's interesting. I used to like him a lot more. He seems to have caught Trump derangement syndrome. I think <laughs> it's really affected him. But he he's he's pretty great. But this guy uh, was talking kind of very similarly. Like at first, they were very overwhelmed. They didn't know what to do. They were sort of just following the directions they were getting from you know the federal government. And then mm-hmm. as time goes on, and they start examining their own statistics and their own studies and and other and their peers and everything, they're starting to feel like this is. Um, you know, probably the opposite of what we should be doing. And he said one of the things yeah. that that was, you know, sort of stood out as curious was it's the first time that he could he could think of that you would quarantine the healthy. <laughs> he said, I, right, he's like, possibly the first time in in like the history of the world. I don't know, back maybe back in like a, the plague times or whatever. <laughs> but I mean, when you're dealing with economies as small and poor as they were back in those days i mean they couldn't afford for months to just sit in their house i mean they would all starve to death right like they they constantly work their labor was so inefficient you know what i mean like they had to like hand plow their fields and everything like that so i you know i don't know how they did it but you know People in the cities in in those times, like medieval Renaissance times, they would leave the urban centers uh, when plague came, and people would spread out into the countryside. So yeah, there's not a lot. They weren't they had a lockdown, but and most people were, of course, in uh, agriculture anyway. Yeah. But the people who were in the urban centers would spread out to try to reduce, say, the impact of it and reduce the amount it could spread. So. Yeah. You know, mitigation strategies aren't unprecedented. And it is the case that during the Spanish flu, there was efforts in some cities to impose a level of lockdown. And 
a lot of the boosters for the lockdown point to those as evidence that this is the right policy. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I have looked into this. I, I do find that a lot of these comparisons are somewhat cherry picked. Like they'll compare two cities, uh, Philadelphia and St. Louis. Always Philly. Are, Always the, yeah. the butt of every joke. I know. <laughs> But, uh, you know, there are a lot of reasons why any two pick set of cities, especially in the case of Philadelphia, where a lot of troops were coming back, might have fared worse. Mm -hmm. And so I found these arguments to be less than fully convincing. Uh, I've seen uh, regressions uh, that show when schools were closed for the Spanish flu versus like the ultimate uh, number of deaths in the city. And. There is a correlation there, but the noise is a lot. And I don't think the R factor was all that high to begin with. So, you know, I, I'm not the, one of these people who would say there's zero evidence for these things. But mm -hmm. what I would say is that the evidence is somewhat weak and it can only make sense if there are no costs involved. And the costs here are obviously, obviously significant. Uh, to us, the costs are pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, but I think that what we're going to find going forward is that the costs to the global poor are going to be so, so much worse. Yeah, that's uh, I, I might try to find the article and, and put it in the notes too. there. Yeah, I think I saw I think it might have been the U.N. Post, yeah. put out uh, a, some article about estimating 300 million people are going to be pushed into starvation because of the economic effects of what's going yeah. on. Right. I mean, it's not hard to imagine. I mean, a global depression. Uh, so incomes go down significantly. Demand for food, especially in places where they don't have a lot of uh, surplus to begin with, is going to be pretty inelastic. I mean, you need the calories that you need to survive. Right. Yeah. So, you know, price of food goes up means, you know, if you're living on you know five dollars a day, the number of calories you consume is going to go down. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lockdown may look like a luxury from our point of view, something that we can afford to do. Uh, but you kind of have to ignore the effects that is inevitably going to have on the rest of the world yeah. or, or be willing to dismiss them. I mean, I, I'm not completely close to the argument that, oh, we can't sacrifice all of our lives to help people far away. But the people who would employ that argument in this circumstance generally uh, wouldn't employ it in others. And yeah. they, they seem unwilling to even look at that evidence. Yeah, I I think that you can, you know, make a, somewhat of an argument to say that we're actually killing more people through uh, this this like mass countrywide quarantine versus yeah. if you did what I said and had the uh, high risk people stay self quarantined while the younger, healthier population, which also makes up the lion's share of the people actually working in the country. Yeah. So the economy would still run. So while they're out there getting infected, creating the herd immunity, there's less, you know, gutting. You know, right now, it's like every day that you just let it go and let it go, you have another nursing home that it trickles into. Or, you know, yeah. whereas if you spent and isn't I think you may have posted about this. I'm not sure. Maybe it's sold somewhere else. But an inordinate amount of the deaths have occurred in nursing homes. Yes. Uh, in Europe, it's something near 50 percent. Uh, for the numbers I saw for the U.S., it's going to be between 25 and 50 percent of all deaths are in nursing homes. Yeah. And so, you know, this is this is part of the whole problem is that there isn't a view towards there is some set of things we can do with the amount of attention or amount of resources we're willing to devote. 
uh, in the UK, at the beginning, at least, they were cognizant of that. They said, you know, if we ask everybody to lock themselves in their homes for a month at a time, that will mean we can't do these other things, which, mm. like bang for buck, will be relatively more effective. And so you look at protecting vulnerable populations versus imposing a broad lockdown. Well, in New York State, and I think you're going to find this is part of the reason why their uh, mortality rates are so much higher there compared with some other places, is they were sending coronavirus positive patients who back to their nursing homes. Jesus. <laughs> and you, you'll be able to, you can find these articles now of it's just spreading like wildfire through people who have compromised immune systems and are already very weak to it. And it's a tragedy. It's just a tragedy. There's a there's an article you can see. This is not conspiracy theory stuff. This is like a question asked directly to Cuomo from I think it was the guy from the New York Post. Like, what is the policy for people in nursing homes? And he said, I have no idea. So the governor has no idea what the policy is. That means he's spending his time with his slide deck that he's making for PowerPoint to come to these conferences every day. And he's not spending the time saying, how can we protect the vulnerable populations? Right. He turned over to his uh, chief health guy who said, we're sending them back to the nursing homes. He just said it flat out. Yeah. Flat Jeez. out. Yeah. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, what, you know, uh, I don't know what percentage of the population in the UK or the US are in nursing homes, but I imagine it's much, much less than 50% or 25%. Yes. <laughs> I don't That's know right. what, 5%? I, I have no idea how many people are in nursing homes. Um, I don't know. I don't have that number. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know I, people tend to not live very long once they go to them. The, right. the, mean, the mean stay, if you will, uh, yeah. for a nursing home is about 14 months. Yeah. Um, so people do are sent to them near the end of the life. But I mean, that just goes to show you this. If you accept the logic that we need to lock down everyone to protect the people who are most at risk, then you have to be focusing on the people right. who are most at risk. Yeah. Outrageous. It, it, it's just it, it it's it's completely scatterbrained. I just there's no words for the failure here, the level of fail. <laughs> oh, I have another uh failure uh story that I wanted mm -hmm. to bring up. And uh I'm actually not sure how you are on time. I'm literally unlimited. I've done <laughs> I've done I think almost 3 hour podcasts before and I've had some go like 45 minutes. So there's no it's not like I have to fit this into a network time slot. So whatever. Uh, but Figure you, about you another, have... uh, another 20, 25 minutes and the natives will start getting real restless. Okay. Okay. Cool. cool. Um, yeah. I So I was reading a little bit about, uh, I, I think I was reading in just an Ars Technica um, article about mm -hmm. the tainted tests that came out um, from the CDC. Yes. And this was... So they basically were trying to get ahead of it. This might have even been in February. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and they basically just completely blew it. Yes. And so we had no tests and we could not, like, get ahead of this thing and, and clamp it down, you know, before it kind of broke out. I don't yeah. I don't know uh, if you I guess you had seen that. Oh. Yeah, it's it's much worse than you think. And I think that your listeners are going to really appreciate like the depths of this story. So there was a WHO test. It was the one literally everyone else was using. Uh, but the CDC was wanted to come up with its own. The reasons for this have really never been wholly clear. 
but they were revealed just in a very indirect way. So I was listening to an interview on NPR with uh, either the head of the CDC or one of the top people. And eventually the interview got around to the question of what happened with these tests. Now, what they did was they developed a test, the test worked, but when they were getting the reagents together, uh, they got some bad reagents. Basically they skipped a number of steps in like their quality assurance and they pushed out a bunch of tests where they had bad reagents. Later, there was another story where they were also contaminated with COVID, but that's a separate thing. Yeah. But the question is, let's just, let's forget that. Let's say that that's like a mistake that anybody could make. Right. Why were they making their own test to begin with? It wasn't because the WHO tested Nick. No, here is the real answer. She asked the guy, the lady from Nick, I said, why did they come up with their own test? He said, you're gonna have to ask the FDA. And then she cuts, she said, no, no, I'm asking you, I'm asking you. And he, what he admitted in a roundabout way, but the interviewer didn't pick up on it, was that the FDA was going to be responsible for approving the test. Uh -huh. Part of the reason the CDC came up with its own test was because they could get faster FDA approval for a CDC-derived test than and the... for the WHO test. Um, <laughs> yeah. So this is bureaucracy start to finish. Miscommunication between these two agencies leading to at what would only be a delayed rollout to be a catastrophic rollout of tests where we had basically none early on. Yeah. And uh, it, it's it, one thing that I, it irks me. It's so, it's so funny. I, I don't know if you ever listened to um, Dave Smith. He's a comedian, but he's a libertarian guy. He's uh, I, I've seen some of his tweets and stuff, but I yeah. don't listen to him. He's pretty yeah. funny. He always talks about Trump, how he's like, how he gets so angry at the Democrats for somehow always pushing him into this weird corner where he feels like he's defending him. Yeah. He's just like, <laughs> hates him. But, you know, he's like, no, mind you, you know, I think he should be tried for war crimes and executed. Yeah. But, like, <laughs> in this case, like, he didn't fuck up the tests. <laughs> like, That's right. Know? That's right. And, uh, yeah, that, that, it, it, I mean, I think that that, you know, there's just like layers of problems and, and it's the and, and whether it's this current, you know, pandemic or the wars or the economy or healthcare, or whatever. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. there's always like, you know, 95 percent of the population in the U.S. is divided, you know, based on party lines and they're both wrong. Yes. <laughs> and uh, that that's certainly what I what I've seen now. It, it would be it. it it might uh, maybe throw them a bone and, and talk about whatever blunders Trump has made. Because honestly, I haven't listened to a single press conference. I just, you know, that's what I see. I mean, I see my friends that are like really, uh, you know, reeling from this Trump derangement syndrome. I mean, I, I, yeah. have, I have friends that were that are Republicans that are like enraged by him more than almost anybody. And and it's just I say it's like dude, man like maybe just like unplug for a little bit i feel like it's like the, yeah. the matrix remember that line i mean maybe just gotta unplug for a little bit but because uh, <laughs> he's just yeah it's like yeah he doesn't make sense but like stop trying to like think he might i don't know but i i don't really honestly like i'm even paying attention but i'd i'd love to hear a little about how the white house has handled this I mean, I think that most of the mistakes have been that have been made would have been made under almost any administration. You know, maybe you get someone who has a lot of like 
executive experience and maintains like really like micromanager. Like if a Bloomberg or something was in there, maybe it would have been handled better. Uh, but almost for anyone else who's just, you know, basically sitting up there at the top, these mistakes would have been. Because what, what do you think? The president, a Democratic Republican, would have gone to the CDC and tell them, no, you guys can't make your own test. Right. It's like if the CDC says we're going to this is the fastest way to get it out to the public and to ramp up is to make our own test. You think he's going to overall? That's not like a Republican or Democrat thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I could go off on Trump for, for a half hour, but it's just like it's not really relevant because the decision most of the critical decision making is happening at the state level. Yeah. Uh, and that's like part of the beauty of our system, in my opinion. Uh, or at least in theory it was what's really really right like the tests need to come from this one place the tests need to come from this one place only because of the way our federal government behaves in germany part of the reason that part of the reason that they've been successful was because they made use of all of their private independent testing laboratories Mm -hmm. and gave them a free hand to develop and deploy their own tests at their own rate and that's part of the reason they were able to ramp up so quickly yeah. And um, South Korea as well. Right. I think that a lot of private um, I think so. created tests. And um, now they might have, you know, might have done some distasteful stuff for libertarians with the, the tracking and everything. But right. I'm not, like, I mean, I, I'm not totally sure how they did it. I mean, I think it's just like once you tested positive, they just sort of got a list of like, OK, well, who did you interact with? I don't know that they were like doing this by gunpoint i mean i I feel like again like you know for me and i would gladly give that up to a healthcare worker trying to like track down the uh you know the 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 spread of this virus and get you know get ahead of it um yeah i mean that's that's contact tracing so the basic idea is simple you find out someone who has it you you try to figure out where they got it a and B, who have they had contact with sufficient to maybe spread it around? And you quarantine those people. Uh, this is not just like history, like saying, what did we do wrong? Because it's critical in saying, where are we going to go next? Uh, a lot of people who have been proponents of the lockdown say, okay, what we need to do is ramp up our testing capability, and then we can do this contact tracing when we reopen to try to limit the number of new cases going forward. We can follow the same strategy. Yeah. Uh, this is not going to work. Um, it's not going to work for two reasons. Uh, the, the academic literature that I've seen suggests that you could have up to uh, 20 people per case, uh, that you'd have to say quarantine. So, you know, if we're talking about only 10,000 new positive uh, cases in the U S a day, like post lockdown, which would be a pretty small number, we're going to start locking. We're going to put 2,200,000 people on quarantine new every day. It's just from a bureaucratic standpoint alone, is completely infeasible. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's number one. And number two, it doesn't make any sense because what we're finding out, again, this is information that wasn't there at the beginning, but it's obvious now. Huge numbers of COVID, people who catch COVID are asymptomatic. You can't do contact tracing on someone who has it, is spreading it, and never knows that they had it. Right, right. It, if more than half of the cases, and that's like an extremely safe lower bound, are, are asymptomatic, then you have no chance of contact tracing reducing you by anywhere by anywhere less than that amount because those people just spread it their whole time they're doing it. Yeah, yeah that uh, that 
that brings up the um, you you talked about like putting the lower bound on on you know the amount of people without uh, symptoms, and I was I was actually wondering about that. In if I have you read through that um, what was it Santa Clara County the 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 re- paper that kind of established that they thought that there might be fifty to eighty five times more people right COVID nineteen did did they happen to mention the about the percentage of the people that tested positive that had symptoms versus not? I don't know if they did a Santa Clara one. Uh, the Santa Clara one has been criticized a lot, some of which I think is very much deserved for like the way they conducted the test. Uh, so I'm comfortable just throwing it out, but there have been other tests similar, like the one that they did in Los Angeles County um, that show similar things like uh, that the Los Angeles one said that 4.1% of uh the population that they tested in los angeles had already been exposed Mm -hmm. which again like puts it up into this many tens of times more people have had it than they have confirmed cases so it's consistent with the santa clara anyway um what would you estimate today well i mean if you had to just uh, guess it depends it depends on the the population i think that probably it is the case that there's more asymptomatic young people than there are old people let me get uh so there was a, a french aircraft carrier uh, here we go. So uh, France has uh, a single uh, aircraft carrier. Uh, 2,300 uh, sailors on it were uh, exposed to COVID-19, and they were all tested. 78% were positive. Hmm. 22% were negative. And of those that were positive, 76% were asymptomatic. Okay. And what, so, what was the, I mean, I guess they're all like pretty young then. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 1% were hospitalized and 0.04% went to the ICU. Hmm. Uh, I don't think there were any deaths. Uh, what? Uh, no, that's if... young. It's not going to be that young because, I mean, there's plenty of, like, older officers on an aircraft carrier, uh, you right. know, 40 right. or 50, but probably not anybody 60 plus. And, like, again, like, those are the people who are at the most risk. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. And there's a new, there's a new one from a prison, which, like, I'm going to tell you this one because it is being reported and it's out there and it's like an official study, Uh uh, but it's so high that I almost don't believe it. It was something like 92 or 95% were asymptomatic. Oh, uh, so that one I almost think is so high that I don't believe it, but it is official data (laughs) that the government is put out itself. So the safest thing to be is a young prisoner. Apparently. Yes. Prisoner, not (laughs) young, young, uh, Air Force or Navy, I don't know what they're <laughs> that's that's good. Navy, but yeah. being a prisoner is the safest thing right now. Huh? They are at herd immunity basically instantaneously. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Um uh, another and I I don't know, hopefully it doesn't feel like we're just bopping around all these different topics, but there were there was a few kind of open uh you know, things that I'd read a little bit about, but I really was hoping you could um mm-hmm. kind of put more light on but Sweden. That yes. was a, a topic yes. I touched upon that I had, I've had, I've kind of, you know, in the, um, kind of the spirit of the two camps and nobody's ever right. Like the right versus left. I've heard both, you know, sides sort of mm-hmm. try to use Sweden, um, to, yes. to sort of bolster their position. And mm-hmm. then I, I kind of just went through and looked and, and the one thing that jumped out at me was not the number of confirmed cases. And this, this is sort of a, a another point, but I feel like, right now you know confirmed cases is just 
it's not like a very good number to go by from country to country. I mean, who knows how many tests they're giving? Like you have to keep that in mind. It's, it's true. very, you know, without sort of controlling around that, mm-hmm. but deaths uh, amongst like, you know, first world countries is something that, that might be a little bit, um, you know, a more, I don't know, cleaner data, you know, yes. like the, it's not like people, there's not a ton of people in the United States just, you know, passing away like in a gutter to never be identified you know and i would think sweden and norway and whatever all of like western europe is sort of similar to that now like you said in in new york maybe they don't test them after they die but i I don't know so there's certainly some possibility but sweden had a a good number more deaths like per per million than that's true norway and finland um and i I was, uh, yeah, I don't know. That that sort of stopped me. I, like, you know, I wanted to go on my my rant, uh, but then I was like, well, I mean, I can't really get around that, and I'm not digging into the numbers anymore. So I don't know if you've sort of looked more into what the what's happening there. Yes, I, I can provide some context. I, you know, I I would not be the person to say that you can do what Sweden is doing and have no cost. But what I can say is that I feel like the comparisons purely with the other Nordic countries are a little bit disingenuous. Those countries' numbers are extremely low, no doubt about it. Uh, but the question I would ask people making that comparison is, why are those the right comparisons to make? Is it because there's some Nordic genetics that make it less likely to die from COVID? I don't think anybody's even suggesting that. Mm-hmm. So it seems like cherry picking. So let me let me suggest something else. If you put Sweden up against other European countries, uh, France, United Kingdom, Switzerland, and Germany. Sweden sits right in the middle at deaths per million people, right in the middle of those. Um, And so there is more complex stuff going on here than just the policies that they're making, because those other countries implemented very, very strong lockdown policies, some of them, and saw just as many deaths per million. Mm -hmm. So I think I think one of the takeaways here is that it's important to not overemphasize the degree to which particular policy choices are really what's driving outcomes here. Uh, I think that you're going to find a lot of countries are more similar than they are different uh, once the peaks have come and gone in all of these countries. Yeah, uh, that's two things I would say. Second is people talk about Sweden a lot. Most of the cases in Sweden, a large majority of them are in and around Stockholm. Stockholm has a very high population density. So like people want to compare population densities of various countries to see if that explains it. Mm-hmm. So, Stockholm has a population density about half of New York City. So so really very high. Yeah. Uh, but if you look at the country as a whole, you know, it's like Canada where it's like, yeah, there's a couple cities that are pretty dense, but there's a ton of really empty space as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, you have to be careful about how you compare these things. And what I can say is that the people looking at the numbers as we see them now and saying, obviously from these, Sweden is making bad choices. They're just wrong. They're speaking way out of turn. I think that uh, a year from now, you might be able to say something like, well, if Sweden had done a hard lockdown, they would have experienced 10%, 20% fewer deaths by that point. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. But you know what? Their businesses and their schools are open, and that's part of the trade-off that you have to discuss. And part of the reason that I've been so upset about the state of the conversation, because that conversation really isn't taking place. It isn't, uh, you know, well, 
you know, it's worth shutting down for this number of people save versus not for this other number. Yeah. 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 I think also when you're dealing with numbers as small as the, the total deaths in these Nordic countries or whatever, I mean, there's just, it's not large numbers, right? So doing statistics on a, a thousand is yeah. gets really problematic if you can you know if that number can be changed by 10 percent by hitting like another nursing home or not it, yes you know, exactly it becomes really you know difficult to then compare you know the u.s and just look across the u.s how all these states are you know all different. absolutely yeah and uh yeah, yeah it will be interesting as as georgia may be may become the the new sweden of the united states as they're they're talking mm -hmm. about opening up we have we can go bowling now i think i can get a haircut and a tattoo yes that's wonderful <laughs> that you can get a haircut i had to i had to do the in-home haircut yesterday so nice. you know <laughs> yeah. roughing it here yeah uh, well the other thing to keep in mind too uh, before we leave the topic of sweden i do want mm -hmm. to mention it would be perfectly consistent with even like the people saying that we should lock down that sweden would in the short term had more cases and more deaths, but in the long term have the same number. Because yeah. in the absence of a treatment or a vaccine, you assume everybody's gonna get it. Right, yeah. And that's why I did the calculation that I mentioned at the beginning. Let's assume that we can't we can't rely on technology that doesn't exist, saying it's going to, it just in some time frame that's realistic, just doesn't seem yeah. like it's something that you can count on. Yeah. What, so. what do you think? So right now we're, we're somewhere around 50,000 deaths in the United States and, and maybe we can kind of start yeah. to, I w was wondering, uh, we could move into sort of what you're looking at now and what, what, you know, kind of, you're still trying to kind of make sense of, or, you know, mm -hmm. what, what data you're waiting to kind of come down and, and help, I don't know, guide your own I, choices. I, I think that, uh, it's possible that, uh, you know, you could wind up with something like by the time everybody's exposed, something like 500,000 deaths in the world. Uh, no, in, in the in United the States, wow. in the U.S., because if the if the infection fatality ratio, that's like, you know, the ratio of people who die to get it is, you know, something like point uh, two. Well, you've got 370 million people in the United States. Mm -hmm. So so that that's possible. Yeah. Um, now, but it is important to remember that the question is, how many years of life is that taking off? This isn't this isn't a number that is killing the same proportion of young people as old people. Right. So and that's something that, you know, probably we want to talk about before I have to drop off here is that how are we going to know ultimately what the difference is between these places? There is a thing called excess mortality. So that's basically like if you take a country and you look at say the number of people dying each week and you plot it on a graph where like the week is the x-axis the number of people is the y mm -hmm. you average over some number of years you get a chart it always has a spike in the winter from flu deaths and pneumonia uh the question here is are people dying from corona in large numbers that wouldn't otherwise be dying uh, one outcome is, and I don't think this is the case, but people who are saying like, oh, coronavirus is a hoax. Well, then you'd probably see nothing on the excess mortality. It would just look like any other year. Mm -hmm. You can already see that's not going to be the case. There's going to be there's going to be a spike and you can see some of it already in the excess mortality. But if that spike goes up and then goes negative for, say, a few months or a year, then that tells you that ultimately 
there's some time period over which the people who were suffering most, the population suffering most from COVID, mm-hmm. would have passed away from other natural causes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I certainly never looked at a, a graph of, of that data. You can look that stuff up. It's all out there. It says excess mortality graphs, and you can find some very preliminary ones from the United States, and you can find ones from Italy uh, and in various European countries. So maybe uh, my last question is to try to to sort of end on a more optimistic note. Mm -hmm. Now, 500,000, assuming everybody gets it, but what doesn't the idea of herd immunity sort of stop it uh, before yeah. that? It it very well might. It, it kind of, it depends on how it spreads. I mean, I think that there are epidemiological models uh, where, uh, so each people, some people are shut-ins and some people go out and shake a hundred hands every week, you know, mm-hmm. salesmen. And uh, the Distribution of people in those categories affects a lot how what proportion of people need to be infected before you get to herd immunity. So let's say that we're, we're like a graph. Imagine a graph, nodes and, and lines between them. Uh, if you need, if everybody is connected to the same number of other people, then you need a fraction of people to have had it. Uh, equal to uh, the number of people who, who you on average spread it to before it goes away. So let's say like for the flu, the number is two. So one person gets the flu, they spread it on average to two people, mm-hmm. right? But not everybody gets the flu. And part of the reason for this is it spreads a certain amount and then there aren't enough people for it to spread around to. Yeah. Uh, that's, part, that's part of herd immunity. But like the n- fraction of people that it needs to spread to before you get to that point depends on how connected that graph is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yes, I mean, it's possible we could see significantly less than that. It's possible we're about to reopen and the places that were really hardest hit already are at that level. I mean, they have New York city, these serology tests, which look for antibodies in New York city, it was above 20% outside of Boston. It's already 30%. That may be the herd immunity level. You could open back up and see almost nothing more in in boston or new york city and then it could take a very long time to spread to the more rural areas of the country that's a kind of a best case scenario interesting yeah well it would be interesting i uh i i've definitely thought a good bit over the last week or so about what opening back up looks like um Mm -hmm. i i think it'll be pretty quick for people i i mean i think there'll be like a short amount of time where people be kind of weird but then you know if if the news you know if if these numbers don't you know keep climbing and and i think also the summer that's something we didn't we didn't touch on but the summer will probably bring the numbers down um at least you know for that season uh i i wouldn't be surprised i mean the amount how quickly they've moved off of like every other like crisis since trump's been in office right uh, as as crazy as this i mean this is this is the I the craziest thing that's happened in my lifetime, um, I, as far as you know, kind of on the world stage. <clears throat> there's never been anything that just affected every single person in the world at the same time in this way. Yeah. Uh, I still have a funny feeling that people just move on and then they're going to be back to like how Russia is interfering with our elections or something. Yeah, it's it's totally possible that you know 
because of the way this is proceeding, people will adjust to some new normal and you know grow to accept some some level of risk. You know, it's like I was telling you in the beginning with this this uh, how risky is it to you by your age level? So if I tell you that it's an extra twenty percent risk as a forty year old, you could reduce your risk by that twenty percent if you like exercise three times a week for an hour. So yeah. it's like you can off you can offset the corona danger by making some lifestyle changes. And I don't think people are even going to do that. So right. that should tell you by itself really how seriously people view this. Right. When right. it comes to the difference between like what they want to say to show that they're caring and what they're willing to actually do to protect themselves. Yeah. Like you eat eat less fast food and right. it has the same same effect, but nobody's gonna you know make a change. Not for that reason, at least. Nope, I don't think but. they will. <laughs> so doctors, you know, you talk to doctors, they'll tell you they have diabetics. They come in, they say, "Look, you're in danger. You have to stop eating this way." They don't listen. Mm -mm. I don't. <laughs> I don't listen. You don't listen. <laughs> no, no. I bet if I stop. Yeah, but smoking... you're not telling people to stay home. So right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, and I'm not and trying. To, I'm not trying to get other people to like smoke cigars and and eat hamburgers. So right. I mean, you know, I'm just doing it. So, but anyway, <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, man. It was really, really great. Uh, great talk. You definitely delivered. Uh, <laughs> my historic first, um, first ever guest. And, uh, you know, I think it, it, it was, uh, it definitely needed to be you. I'm glad that, uh, it wasn't the Illuminati <laughs> telepath. <laughs> and, uh, I don't, I don't know if you want people to hey, follow they might you. stop me from getting on, man. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> this isn't technically, this isn't out yet, man. They could still start doing the chanting and in the channel and, and, uh, convince, uh, you know, convince us that we need to not put this out because there's so much truth in here and, you know, they don't want the truth to get out. No. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't, I don't know if you want people to, follow you on twitter you're you're sort no, of similar fun, yeah. to me as like i'm not even sure what i use twitter for i mostly just yeah. kind of like find stuff but yeah if you want to put out your handle yeah as adam at adam v steel uh so yeah if you want to hear some see some more uh coronavirus stuff that's fine uh don't expect too much more than that because that's basically <laughs> what i'm using it for right now yeah awesome all right man well uh you know stay healthy Stay okay, safe. you too, you too. All right. All the listeners too. Stay yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, yeah, we will uh, we'll be back very soon. Peace.